when we're talking about the destiny of Afro-Colombians and their fight for their land and their freedom. If you're a Pan-Africanist, you have to be standing with the Venezuelans in their resistance against US imperialism. Right. That's a fundamental basis of Pan-Africanism. It was not until 37 years after the end of World War II that all African countries were independent. Book ended by Ghana in 1957 and South Africa in 1994. One of the major challenges we have today when it comes to the African continent, and that is a new scramble for Africa. A new scramble to try to control the destiny of our continent. And one of the major negative forces in this new struggle for Africa is in fact the United States of America. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and today we spend the hour with the scholar Angela Sims and the activist Maurice Carney and Ajamu Baraka. Speaking at the 16th anniversary program marking the historic 1958 All-African People's Conference held in Accra, Ghana. This program was at the Festival Center in Northwest D.C. on Saturday, February 17, 2018. That 1958 conference was the first major Pan-African gathering organized on African soil. And the theme was Hands Off Africa. Organizers for this anniversary called on the global African family to continue the fight for a free, liberated, and self-determined Africa. The MC and one of the organizers is Ganyaka Lagoki, professor of history at Lincoln University. Today, we decided that the conference was going to be about Pan-Africanism and decolonization today, lessons from the 1958 All-African People's Conference. We have three speakers. Angela Sims is a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania and she's going to talk about the Pan-African solidarity during that time. And then we have Maurice Kane, who's going to talk about the historic significance of the a revolutionary gathering. And at Jammu, we will talk about the, the militarization of Africa by foreign powers. So I'm going to call on the stage Angela Sims. Greetings, everyone. I'm honored to be a part of this conference, and it's exciting to be with you today as we commemorate and draw lessons from the 1958 All-African People's Conference. Africa for Africans. These words encapsulate a 600-year-old struggle to control the political, economic, and other social systems that determine the well-being of Africans and the continent itself. Pan-Africanism, with pan meaning all or whole, expands what constitutes the African beyond the continent and the people who occupy it. Pan-Africanism encompasses at least three dimensions. One, geographic, Africa as a continent. Two, identity. Africans, while coming from various ethnic and cultural backgrounds with some living on the continent and some abroad, are one people because they share historical experiences. And three, political, 
a solidarity or a willingness to struggle alongside one another to gain control or at least significant influence over the political, economic, and other social systems that govern African and African descendants' lives. Well, these three aspects of Pan-Africanism have been present since Pan-Africanism's inception in the 1800s. The individuals and groups who use Pan-Africanism to interpret the world and their place within it have continuously redefined what the concept means to respond to the opportunities and the constraints that they faced. But let us take a step back for a moment to recall the history that precedes Pan-Africanism. Africa has been home to many societies and ethnic groups in the last several millennia, many of which created the basis for what would be called civilization or complex human societies characterized by strong religious, philosophical, and cultural beliefs and practices, the division of labor, and the use of advanced technology. Africa is the place where Homo sapiens evolved 200,000 years ago, for that matter. Senegalese scholar and politician Sheikh Anta Diop in his book Civilization or Barbarism and Authentic Anthropology and U.S. sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois in his book The World in Africa, Color and Democracy offer compelling evidence that the supposed paragons of ancient Western thought, the Greeks, sought instruction from the ancient Egyptians, which include the highly melanated peoples of the Upper Nile, such as the Nubians, that is people today we consider black. They also note, for instance, the achievements of the kingdoms of Mali, Ghana, and Songhai in the 15th and 16th centuries, which supported tens of thousands of people at a high standard of living for that time, and which produced and exchanged goods highly sought after throughout Western and Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Diop and Du Bois, in showing African societies high levels of scholarly, technological, and cultural and religious achievement across the continent, not just in Egypt, and their once peer-to-peer -peer relationship with European societies, are speaking to audiences that believed Africa had no significant history prior to its contact with Europeans. And certainly no history that contributed to the European epochs traditionally considered to be what led to Europe's flourishing and that is the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, and the Age of Enlightenment. So now back to the modern conception of Pan-Africanism. The self-conscious articulation of Pan-Africanism per se is fundamentally tied to Africa's experience with non-Africans, particularly Europeans, and particularly Afri as Africans' relationships with Europeans shifted from mutual respect to one where Europeans sought to dominate African peoples and resources. The two historical processes that made it a necessity for Africans on the continent and in the diaspora to assert a self-conception and worldview distinct from Europeans were, first, Europeans' forcible removal of 13 million Africans from the continent through the transatlantic slave trade from the 15th through 19th centuries, and two, colonization. European colonization of Africa began formally in 1885 with the Berlin Conference, but it, Europeans had been extracting resources and forcing Africans to labor for them long before 1885. What changed the nature of the European-African relationship from that of trade and mutual respect to one characterized by Europeans seeking to dominate Africans? Well, Europe in the 1400s was a time of great turmoil and an inflection point in its history with far-reaching consequences for African history. In Europe, there was a shift from feudalism to mercantile capitalism. Many of Europe's burgeoning nation-states, Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, France, and Great Britain, competed with one another for supremacy and fought wars with each other, leading to a desire for even more wealth. And there were a series of religious upheavals, such as the Spanish Inquisition. 
and outgrowth of the political, economic, and other social unrest in Europe was the so-called age of exploration, a sort of release valve for the social pressures just discussed. These so-called explorers, mind you, people have always been curious. The issue is not exploration. It's the nature of the relationships one seeks to establish with other peoples in the land they occupy when one does such exploring. But I digress. These explorers sought to create wealth for themselves and the kings and queens who sponsored their trips. While gold and other precious metals were present in the Americas over time, it was the production of cash crops, sugarcane, cotton, tobacco, rice, that became the means for creating wealth for Europeans. Cultivating crops requires intense labor. Europeans experimented with many different labor arrangements, including indentured servitude for Europeans, but the enslavement of Africans is the arrangement Europeans settled on. At the dawn of the transatlantic slave trade, there were internal movements of enslaved people among indigenous African societies, usually in the aftermath of wars. However, Europeans took the majority of enslaved Africans by force. Most importantly, the scale and the means of executing and maintaining the slave system in the Americas and in the Caribbean is unique in all of human history for several reasons, because Europeans used Africans' unpaid labor as their primary source of wealth. They tortured Africans to force them to attain high production yields. They instituted a system of perpetual intergenerational transmission of slavery from parents to their children and devised human ranking schemes and pseudoscience to normalize and rationalize Africans' enslavement and their social death, to borrow a term from US sociologist Orlando Patterson. Racism is an outgrowth of slavery. It reflects the need to justify the unjustifiable. It is in this context, in the late 1800s, where enslavement, racism, colonialism, and imperialism were the modal experience of African and African-descended peoples that pan-Africanism developed among Africans in the diaspora. Though it is important to note that maroon societies, armed resistances, and other forms of contestation were common among enslaved Africans. Perhaps most notably, under the leadership of Toussaint Louverture, enslaved Africans in Haiti revolted against their French colonizers, becoming in 1803 the first black nation state in the Americas. Trinidadian scholar C.L.R. James writes about the Haitian people's role in the French Revolution and ultimately how they secured victory over Napoleon's forces and thus independence from France in his book Black Jacobins, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. The first political mobilization of pan-Africanism occurred in London in 1906 under the leadership of Trinidadian lawyer Henry Sylvester Williams, who fought against British colonialism in Trinidad. Another instrumental figure in the development of pan-Africanism is W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois led four of the five pan-African congresses held before the first wave of African countries were independent of their European colonizers. At the fifth Pan-African Congress in 1945, the year World War II ended, critical steps were taken to coordinate the efforts of anti-colonial activists. Another significant Pan-Africanist figure in the 1800s and early 1900s is Marcus Garvey, and he's from Jamaica, though most of his Pan-Africanist initiatives were based in the United States. That is, until the U.S. government deported him. Garvey founded the fraternal organization the United Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, in 1914. UNIA auxiliary components included the Black Star Steamship Line and the international newspaper Negro World. Among the women who organized and facilitated early Pan-Africanism were Anna Julia Cooper, Alma Labadee, Louise Little, Amy Ashwood, and Amy Jacques Garvey. 
pre-World War II African leaders laid the bedrock that the post-war independence movements in Africa would build upon. In the post-war period, pan-Africanism shifted from being racialistic to state-centric, or focused on Africans gaining control of the political regimes that governed them. Across the Atlantic, while pan-Africanism was taking hold among African diaspora communities, though the transatlantic slave trade had ended in the mid-1800s, Europeans remained in Africa and devised new processes for extracting raw materials and for forcing Africans to labor for them. In the early 1900s, industrialists in Europe and the United States were not only interested in African metals and minerals, gold, copper, diamonds, they were also interested in palm oil and rubber. For instance, the Belgians and their hunger for rubber are estimated to have killed 10 million Africans and cut off Africans' hands as punishment for failure to meet Belgian's demands. During World War II, Africans' labor and material resources were an integral part of the war effort, with thousands of Africans fighting in the war. After the war, African-descendant peoples hoped the Allies' victory would be a double V, right? Victory over the Axis powers and victory against racist policies and colonization the world over, right? Reasonable thing to hope for. However, the Allied powers' commitment to liberating Europe the, from the tyranny of Hitler, Mussolini, and the Japanese Empire did not transfer to the colonies the Allied powers controlled and benefited from. Not only were the Allies intent to have virtually unrestricted access to Africa's raw materials, which were vital to their industrial economies, they also viewed control of Africa through the geostrategic lens of the Cold War. The United States and its partners, namely the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, fought against the Soviet Union through proxy wars in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, though of course it's the African experience that we highlight today. It was not until 37 years after the end of World War II that all African countries were independent. Book ended by Ghana in 1957 and South Africa in 1994. At the 7th Pan-African Congress held in 1994 in Kampala, Uganda, women's liberation was a prominent theme. Women at the conference founded Pan-African Women's Liberation Organization to create space for articulating an agenda that would increase women's capacity for self-determination. Another concern raised at the 1994 conference was the need to have a conception of pan-Africanism from below. A term Democratic Republic of the Congo Senator Ernest Wamba Diawamba introduced. Pan-Africanism of this sort, according to Wamba, recognizes that there has been defeat through victory. That while African leaders may have political authority, that authority is devastatingly compromised by the structuring of African economies in ways that continue to support Western imperialism. A focus on fostering greater cooperation among professionals within Africa, beyond what is demonstrated through the African Cup of Nations, that it all to take away from the world's favorite sport, soccer or football, was another major theme. Taken together, the 1994 Congress reflects the fact that despite the shared experiences related to the traumas of slavery and colonization and the economic, political, and social tragedies that they wrought, pan-African identity and commitments must be continually cultivated as an idea and its attendant precepts renegotiated. And that's for two reasons. One, pan-Africanism as a framework must respond to the material, social, and psychological conditions average people face for it to gain mass support. And two, pan-Africanism must be expansive enough to incorporate the multiple social statuses African and African-descendant people possess outside of their African identity and race, with class and gender often being the two other important statuses to bear in mind. 
The concept of holding multiple marginalized statuses simultaneously leading to variation in the experiences of black people, women, or poor people is emphasized by black American feminists such as Kimberly Crenshaw, who wrote the law review article Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color, and Patricia Hill Collins, author of the book Black Feminist Thought, Knowledge, Consciousness, and the Politics of Empowerment. Crenshaw, Collins, and their contemporaries, such as Alice Walker and Bell Hooks, use the terms intersectionality, interlocking oppressions, and double jeopardy to refer to these interdependent social processes. 20th century neo-Marxist Antonio Gramsci contends that the phenomenon of oppressed people's willingness to support unjust systems is how hegemony is realized. A dominant group, through various mediating social processes, accommodates subordinate groups' interests, however marginally, such that subordinate groups support the social order, obviating the state's needs for coercive action, that is force, to maintain the social order. Therefore, even the most righteous resistance contends with many mutually reinforced social arrangements that people are invested in, albeit to varying degrees. While the European progenitors of Marxism in the mid-1800s, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, predict that oppressed workers, the proletariat, who suffer the physical and psychological hardships that create the, the surplus value or profit for the capitalist or bourgeoisie, will eventually revolt, European sociologist Max Weber, writing later in the 1800s and early 1900s, offers a more complex theory of society. According to Weber, we have multiple statuses that shape how we see the world, what we value, and the styles of life we pursue and ultimately with whom we will feel solidarity. And while it is the case that stable society's use of violence is often not overt, but implicit, or at least hidden from plain view, it is imperative not to minimize the primacy that violence, brutal violence, plays in the background of the social theory I just discussed, as well as the role that violence, brutal violence, played in the original accumulations I mentioned earlier, wealth building through slavery and colonialism. Franz Fanon, a Martinican psychiatrist, philosopher, and fighter in Algeria's War of Independence against France, wrote in his book, The Wretched of the Earth, the last shall be first. Decolonization is verification of this. This determination to have the last move up to the front, to have them clamber up too quickly, some say, the famous echelons of an organized society, can only succeed by resorting to every means, including, of course, violence, end quote. Many of us probably recognize the any means necessary phrase from U.S. freedom fighter Malcolm X and the U.S. black power movement. Fanon's conception of violence is a sober recognition of what it will take to confront and overcome the existential threat black people face. Fanon saw that non-alignment or choosing not to participate in the Cold War was not an option. Africa was the site of endless proxy wars and contests between the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union. Furthermore, Fanon argues that even the dichotomy of East versus West was just that historical moment's instantiation of a more essential issue, the ability of all people on Earth to have access to the resources necessary to live lives that reflect their God-given potential. In this vein, Fanon states in The Richard of the Earth, quote, the basic confrontation which seemed to be colonialism versus anti-colonialism, indeed capitalism versus socialism, is already losing its importance. What matters today, the issue which blocks the horizon, is the need for a redistribution of wealth. Humanity will have to address this question no matter how devastating the consequences may be, end quote. 
Guyanese historian Walter Rodney reinforced Fanon's point when he shared at the Sixth Pan-African Congress in 1974 that Pan-Africanists must fight against the many guises of exploiter classes. Whatever their race or color, class position, whether they are from indigenous groups in Africa or from elsewhere. And Martinican scholar Amy Cesare argues in his book, Discourse on Colonialism, that the forces that led to human cataclysms like the 20th century wars haunt us today. That Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich and similarly oriented totalitarian regimes are a logical downstream of unmitigated desire to achieve a superhuman race based on one definition of human achievement and where there is no regard for the cost incurred by people deemed inferior. As we look forward to consider how we can make Africa for Africans and how Pan-Africanism can serve as a means to achieve this, we must take heart of the fact that Pan-Africanism must be grounded in people's daily lived experience. To do this, Pan-Africanists must work in concert with other civil society groups, from neighborhood associations to church groups to book clubs, and working with other civil society groups because Pan-Africanists must be attuned to the tension of accounting for African and African descendants' heterogeneous experiences and histories alongside a shared focus on political and economic solutions that uplift African and African descendant people as a whole. Threading this needle requires being in community with each other, even when it's uncomfortable, perhaps especially then. We need to create a principle-based yet adaptive pan-African common sense, narratives, repertoires and frames regarding what it means to be pan-African, as well as tangible ways to realize our vision. Perhaps we might think about what it would take to build the source of resilient communities that can foster political solidarity among African people and people of African descent. We might also consider, how do we reach agreement on policy platforms, prioritize policy goals, and petition government and other institutions to respond? How can we spend our money in ways that reinforce our policy priorities? What social activities might we abstain from to indicate our desire for social change? These are just a few of the questions I thought of to get us started. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Angela Sims. Now, the next person is going to be Maurice Kani, director of the Friends of the Congo. Today, he's going to talk about the historic significance of the conference. Maurice Kani, to this stage. Thanks, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, speaking about uh, uh, motherland, what uh, I would like to convey um, throughout the, the presentation, um, even though we're taking a historical look, the underlying fundamentals, the principles that were in motion at that time, obtained to this day. And what that requires is the type of resistance that we saw there at that time uh, should also be in place today. So I'm making an argument for continuity. We tend to look back at historical events in vacuum as if we're celebrating something in the past, as if those forces that Nkrumah and Padmore resisted, somehow disappeared when they left the scene. <laughs> if anything, they're more intractable, more insidious today than they were yesterday. If not for the very reason 
that we're probably less conscious and less aware of the insidious nature of the imperial forces. So what, what I'll do in the presentation talking about the 1958 All-African People's Conference is provide some context uh, before we get to the 58 conference. That's my charge uh, today. And that 58 conference that occurred under the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah was a culmination of a series of conferences, Pan-African conferences. So really, um, at a basic level, what is Pan-Africanism in Pan-Africanism anyways? At the very basic, the basic level. Uh, Tony Martin um, says of Pan-Africanism that it's the attempts of African peoples to link up their struggles for mutual benefit. Uh, Padmore goes on to say it's the solidarity of Africans and people of African descent. At its highest stage, its highest level, we go to Nkrumah and Kwame Ture, where Ture says that it's the liberation and unification, total liberation and unification of the African continent under scientific socialism. That's the aspirational aspect of Pan-Africanism. So the Pan-Africanism has been a march of liberation. We look at it normally starting with the 1900 Pan-African Conference organized by Henry Sylvester Williams and Bishop Alexander Walters of the Amy Zion Church. However, what we do know through our history is that prior to that, there have been Pan-African activity, probably defined in what George Shepherdson's called the small P of Pan-Africanism. George Shepherdson talks about the small P and the larger P. Small P meaning social activities, cultural activities, activities that are not necessarily a unified political march. So if we look at figures in the Americas, figures like Henry Highland Garnett, if we look at Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, we look at figures like Martin Delaney, from who we get the term Africa for the Africans. We're very much involved in the late 1800s in Pan-African activity before we get to the Pan-African conferences of 1900. Even figures in Brazil and Angola in the late 1870s spoke of the United States of Africa. So in 1900, with Henry Sylvester Williams and Bishop Alexander Walters, it was at the 1900 conference where we see figures like, uh, as Angela mentioned, Anna Julia Cooper were participants. W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Blaise Diang was an early African that was involved in the Pan-African movement starting in the 1900s. It was there that the resolution came out where W.E.B. Du Bois addressed to the nations of the world. And out of this conference, that's where we get Du Bois three years before the souls of black folks saying the challenge of the 20th century is the color line. It is out of that conference we find the articulation on the part of African elites of a moderate demand, demanding the ending of discrimination, demanding better treatment for colonial subjects under colonialism, 
demanding that the great powers that were entrusted with African states, colonial states, that they uh, provide greater space for political engagement. So at its core, it was a moderate demand. This first Pan-African Conference by Sylvester Williams was then followed up by a series of Pan-African Congresses from 1919 to 1945, which for all intents and purposes, W.E.B. Du Bois carried on his shoulder. And those conferences from 1919 to 1945, they also reflected a very moderate demand on the colonial powers. In fact, Du Bois said something really interesting in his autobiography. He said that although the demand from those conferences were anti-colonial and anti-imperialist, but Du Bois said something in its modern stance. He, he, he articulated what he called nonviolent positive action. That was the approach that they were taking. However, Du Bois said in his autobiography that he was keenly aware of the guns and the power of the imperial forces, the colonialists. So those conferences were circumscribing their demands based upon the realities of the violence that could be waged upon African subjects. So that explains in part why those conferences were moderate in nature from the 1919 in Paris right up to the Manchester Conference. And those conferences leading up to the Manchester Conference were led primarily by elites. They were not necessarily connected to the masses of the people. The demands were moderate. It was, they recognized the power of the imperial forces and the leaders were not connected to the masses of the people. Now, by the time we get to 45, there was a fundamental shift. In 45, we see now that the elites are collected, connected to the masses. The people who are coming to the Manchester Conference in 45 are representatives from trade unions. In fact, what you'll notice about the series of conferences, whether you go back from 1900 right up to, to 45, they're connected to world events. So there's a World Federation of Trade Unionists were organizing in 45. And the organizers wanted to take advantage of that opportunity to organize the Manchester Conference. So you had workers that were represented, farmers that were represented, Women's groups are represented. In addition to that, it was the first time you really start, started to see a strong representation from the African continent. We're especially coming out of West Africa. So you had figures like Kwame Nkrumah, who was on the organizing secretariat, along with W.E.B. Du Bois, of course, and then the Trinidadian George Padmore. So it was Padmore, Du Bois, Nkrumah, that were at the helm of the leadership of the 45 Conference. And what you'll notice that was distinguishing about the 45 Conference, in addition to its mass character, for the first time, the organizers of the Congresses said that as a last resort, violence is an option. So we see an increasing radicalization of the Congresses. And the 45 Congress itself laid the foundation for the 1958 
All-African People's Conference. Because in the 45 conference, a lot of the figures that participated, uh, Tom Oboya, Jomo, Jomo Kenyatta, Azikwe, they all were going back to Africa out of the declaration that, that came from the conference that they were going to fight for the total liberation of the African continent. That was a key mandate that came out of the conference, that leaving the conference, a practical outcome is for you to return home to the West Indies, return home to the African continent, you're going to fight for the total liberation of the African continent. So, in, in a lot of respects, the 58 conference is the corollary to the 1955 Bandung Conference. The 55 Bandung Conference represented the gathering of Asian nations in their stance against colonialism and their anti-imperialist stance. And the 58 Conference in Accra can be seen as a corollary of that, where you had African nations gathering in order to make a strong and firm stance against colonialism and imperialism. So, in 58, there are really two conferences. In April, we had the conferences of African states. There were eight independent states at the time, at the April conference. Uh, you had uh, Ghana, of course, Liberia. You had the United Arab uh, Emirates, or Egypt. Uh, you had Tunisia, Libya, Sudan, Morocco, and Ethiopia. However, the conference that spoke to the masses of Africans was the All-African People's Conference in December of 1958 that called for the inclusion of the masses of Africans. Students, workers, farmers, journalists. There was a broad, cross, broad appeal that was made. Uh, Pat Moore, who was working with Nkrumah in the United Kingdom, had gone to Ghana with Nkrumah. He was, at that, by this time, of course, Nkrumah had captured the state. And he said something that was very interesting at the start of the 58th conference. He said, I felt that at last Pan-Africanism had moved to the African continent where it really belonged. And Padmore himself said something. He said, we move now from principles and theory to real politics. Meaning that he had state power backing up the principles of Pan-Africanism. The resources of the state can now be utilized to advance the Pan-African vision. And we see some concrete examples of how this actually plays out that I'll share with you. So, Nkrumah himself was very clear. He said that the independence of Ghana without the liberation of Africa as a whole is totally meaningless. So, we see that during the conference, Nkrumah himself was witnessing what uh, had happened in India with the Gandhian revolution. So in a sense, that nonviolent Gandhian perspective was still a fundamental part of the Pan-African uh, project. In fact, we had figures like Franz Fanon who participated in the conference. And Fanon was engaged in a fierce battle in Algeria, where the Algerians were resisting the French. And one of the key questions that was put on the table in front of these nonviolent participants was the question of violence. What do we do in states where 
the colonial masters are using violence against us where nonviolence is not an option. And people from the National Liberation Front of Algeria, the folks who participated, squarely, squarely put that to the organizers. And they had to take that into consideration. And it's out of taking that into consideration that we get the notion that want liberation by any means necessary. So that was a key concession. Remember in 45, the question of violence was a last resort. By the time we get to 58, with the Algerian case, the question comes front and center uh, around the usage of violence. If we look at the 58 conference, previous conferences was by the diaspora, some Africans in, in 45, mainly French speaking. But another key impact of the 58 conference was bringing the Francophone world into play. It was at the end of the war, France was weak. But de Gaulle recognized that he had to make changes. Because of the weakness of France, because of the fierce violent resistance that they were facing in Algeria, they had to make a decision about the other colonies. So de Gaulle did a tour of Africa in the, in the summer and fall of 58. And there was a referendum that was put on the table by the French that you're either gonna say yes or no. You're either gonna be a part of France or you're gonna be not a part of France. And he lobbied for it. And by the time de Gaulle got to Guinea with Secouture, the Guineans voted to the tune of 95% to exit from the French. Secouture said to de Gaulle, right in front of him, while he was there, he said that it is better to be poor and free than to live in opulence and be a slave. It's reminiscent of the meeting between Mitterrand and Sankara in the early 80s, when Sankara challenged Mitterrand. Now, here's where the power of Pan-Africanism comes into play, when you have a state that's leading the Pan-African uh, project. France, as many of you know, probably was, uh, uh, was famously stated, took everything out of Guinea, right? They took uh, the bathroom sinks, telephones, pens, you named it, and left Guinea destitute. However, because Nkrumah had control of the state and the resources of the state, he quickly rushed in with a 10 million pound or a 23 million dollar loan to Guinea to back up the Guinean state. So then you had the formation of, of Guinea and Ghana and later on Mali as the nucleus of the vanguard of the Pan-African project on the African continent. So, in addition to the state backing up the Pan-African project, we see that those delegates who left the 58 conference, whether Roberto Holden that, uh, in Angola, they went back uh, emboldened to fight a stronger battle within their own countries. Holden in Angola went back to fight a violent resistance. Felix Mumey in the Cameroon went back to fight a violent resistance. Patrice Lumumba, most notably in the Congo, he went back to fight as well. At the moment Patrice Lumumba got back in December of 1958, he organized a rally in the Congo. Thousands of people came out. And these leaders were able to go back knowing that they had the backing of a strong state that can come to their rescue. But it wasn't only these leaders. You started to see different federations starting to form, Pan-African federations, journalists federations, workers federations, farmers federations, women's federations. So you have these 
Pan-African formations coming out of the 58 conference with a strong spirit of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, and the fight for the full and total liberation of the African continent. So I'm going to bring it to a close. Pan-Africanism has always been anti-colonial. That's the basics, clearly. It has always been anti-imperialist. That's a basic of Pan-Africanism. George Padmore really lays it out when he says the fundamental principle and objective of Pan-Africanism is not to be neutral in anything affecting the destiny of Africans. So what does that mean? That's not something that's just stuck in 1958. We can't be neutral when we're talking about the destiny of Afro-Colombians and their fight for their land and their freedom. We can't be neutral when we talk about the destiny of Afro-Venezuelans who have benefited from the Chavez era and is now under withering attack from US imperialism. If you're a Pan-Africanist, you have to be standing with the Venezuelans in their resistance against US imperialism. Right. That's a fundamental basis of Pan-Africanism. You can't be neutral in the case of Togo with the Togolese fighting to get rid of a 50-year dynasty that was imposed on them by the French. You can't be neutral in the case of the Congo with the youth who are resisting a Kabila regime that was facilitated by the French and the United States. So Pan-Africanism is not something that's stuck in the past. It's not a historical relic, but it's a living, breathing, fundamental desire on the part of African people. We may be a distance away from arriving at a total liberation of Africa, total unification of Africa under scientific socialism, but the operational principles still obtain that we have to secure the base. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maurice Kane. Now, uh, in 1958, there was one slogan uh, that was uh, Hands of Africa, and then today people who are fighting against AFRICOM and the militarization of Africa are using the same slogan. Moraga is going to talk about that. Thank you very much, sir, and it's a privilege to have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. I greet you by saying once again, what is the universal objective of our people? And that, that is power to the people. Right power to the people. Right that is the message, that is the objective that came out of the 1958 conference. That, in fact, is the objective that we have to fight for today. One of the things that we have to remind ourselves of is that no matter how much power a state has, that power can be reversed. The real source of power, therefore, has to be with the people. That is the message of 1958. That is the message of today. When we look at 1958, we are not looking back uh, as both of our presenters reminded us, just to talk about events in the past. But we understand that history is a site of struggle. 
History is a place where we contest the enemy. George Orwell had a very interesting quote. He said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So those forces that are in place today attempt to justify their dominance and attempt to project themselves into the future by controlling how we see the past. Our responsibility as people struggling for liberation is to tell our own story, to decolonize that history, to capture that history for ourselves and give it our interpretation. So we say that we have a history of struggle, a history of fighting back. I'm only going to suggest, my brothers and sisters, that one of the themes that's been consistent in our struggles has been that our struggles have been international. International among ourselves and international in the context of being connected to the oppressed people around the world. They're part of what defines our movement has in fact been that internationalism. And that is the part of our struggle that we have to recapture. To remind ourselves that we are not only involved in struggle here in this country, but our struggles have always been interconnected fundamentally with African people around the world and connected fundamentally with all those who are oppressed and struggling for liberation against one common enemy. One common enemy that links all of us together. We name that enemy. We say that enemy is the white supremacist, colonial, capitalist patriarchy. We name the enemy so that we are not confused about what we need to be doing. So we're not confused about what the real objective should be. When you understand that we're up against an enemy that is structured, that is committed to maintaining its dominance globally, then you won't be confused by efforts to suggest to us that we can reform the structures, that we can make some little changes, that all we gotta do is get rid of a Trump and bring in a Democrat and everything will be all right. When you clear about who you are, when you clear about your enemy, then you understand your responsibility. And you understand your responsibility is not to reform this thing, but to destroy it, to transform it, to build something different because we can be different. And in the process of us changing ourselves, we also change the system, not just for ourselves, but for those who come after us. So the message of 1958 is a message of struggle. It is a message of returning to the source, as our dear brother Amakar Brown frames it, that as important as state power can be, and it is, the real source and most consistent source of power is in fact the people. 
So one of the things we have to do to try to uh, intensify the struggle that we are involved in globally is to uh, make sure that we strengthen the people, make sure we're clear about what we have to fight against, and to be vigilant against those new forms of oppression and exploitation. And one of the major challenges we have today when it comes to African people, when it comes to the African continent, is what we see now 60 years after 1958, and that is a new scramble for Africa. A new scramble to try to control the destiny of our continent. And one of the major negative forces in this new struggle for Africa is in fact the United States of America. Now what that means my friends is that if the US is involved in attempting to recolonize Africa using military means and that main method of means it is using is in fact uh, the new Africa command because when we talk about recolonize, let's make sure we're clear though. Uh, because as we all know, Africa has never been completely decolonized. The Europeans have never left. Kwame Nkrumah um, uh, reminded us in 1965 that uh, neo-colonialism was the highest, highest stage of imperialism. That was true then and is true today. That basically the forms of oppression changed but in qualitative terms, the same kinds of relationships still exist. Okay? So the U.S. never left Africa. Uh, but today, because of the relative space that some of these states have on the African continent and their ability to leverage their space by connecting up with other powerful states in the world, like uh, the Chinese. What we have today now is the perception on the part of the U.S. that it needs to step in uh, and to make sure that the Chinese don't make more inroads into the African continent. Now, we're not going to get into uh, the relative objectives and behavior of the Chinese in Africa. We can say this, though, that basically what we see is that the Chinese have been operating much differently than the other colonial European powers. That their footprint uh, is not the same as the footprint of Western European colonialism. Therefore, there's been some economic advancements and benefits in this relationship. And the consequence of that has been that there's been significant influence uh, that the Chinese have on the African continent uh, and the regard that many people have toward uh, the Chinese. Now, what that means is that for the U.S., the way in which they operate, they've always kept their, their foot on the necks of Africa and Africans. And what they are, are prepared to do to try to maintain their presence in the African continent is to utilize the only weapon, really, they have, really the only weapon they are choosing to utilize, and that is the weapon of militarism.
the weapon of war. And so they have decided that what they're going to do is to engage in activities to destabilize various parts of the African continent, creating the pretext for more direct uh, African, more direct intervention into the continent in order to block the Chinese, in order to make sure that they keep access to some of the, uh, most of the mineral wealth on that African continent. So to do that, they have created various structures. One major structure they created is the US-Africa Command, AFRICOM. Uh, through this command, they have been able now to establish relationships with 52 of the 54 African nations. Through this command and through various other kinds of programs, uh, we find that there is a uh, steady increase in the number of U.S. troops on the African continent. As a consequence of that steady increase, we see not, not stability, but instability. So what we have to do, my friends, as the citizens at the center of empire, is to understand that as a consequence of our physical location, that brings certain responsibilities. And one major responsibility we have is to make sure that people in this country, and in particular African people, know what is happening on the African continent, and to build resistance to this recolonization. That is the spirit of internationalism. That is the spirit of revolutionary Pan-Africanism. The struggle for African liberation continues. And the target is not only the African continent, but all of the African spaces that now exist as a consequence of colonization, as a consequence of the slave trade. Now we have African people literally all over the world. We have 150 million Africans in the so-called Americas. So our responsibility is to make these links, to build more powerful oppositional structures, to recognize that our objective is not to reform, but to make revolution. That is the lesson of 1958. That is the lesson we have to relearn today. That our responsibility is to struggle, to stay clear, and to, in fact, uh, make revolution. Now, we say that we are not only concerned about what is happening on the African continent, we understand that the kind of militarism we are fighting against is also linked to the militarism that directly impacts us in this country. We want to oppose the, the war and death and militarism in Africa. But we have to recognize and understand that militarism in Africa, AFRICOM on the African continent is the flip side of the same imperialist coin. On the other side of that coin is the 1033 program in the US. It is the domestic military that we call the police. So my brothers and sisters, we have a task, a responsibility. It is to not only save ourselves, but also to save humanity.
to recognize that we have the power to transform this society and in fact to transform the world. The only thing that we have to do is make a commitment to in fact do that. We're on the right side of history. We understand that, we know that. Now all we have to do is organize ourselves and get on the right side of the fight. Thank you. You have been listening to Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, speaking at the 60th anniversary program marking the historic 1958 All-African People's Conference held in Accra, Ghana. Before Baraka was Executive Director of Friends of the Congo, Maurice Carney, and at the top of the hour, Angela Sims, a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. This program was at the Festival Center in Northwest D.C. on Saturday, February 17, 2018, That 1958 conference was the first major Pan-African gathering organized on African soil, and the theme was Hands Off Africa. Organizers for this anniversary called on the global African family to continue the fight for a free, liberated, and self-determined Africa. The MC and organizers was Kenyaka Lagoki, professor of history at Lincoln University. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be signing books Saturday, March 10th at the Black Expo at the Renaissance Downtown Hotel in Northwest D.C. Thanks for tuning in. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.